The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Mr. President, very welcome to our program. Now, you're here for the anniversary of the Foundation of Concern. We can feed the world now. We have enough food in spite of the growing population, but famines happen now because of conflict. I mean, how have we failed all of these people? Well, first of all, <clears throat> we can feel the world, feed the world now. And the only places that, uh, where we can't do anything about it is if conflict itself physically prevents the introduction of the food. So in those cases, we fail by not preventing or ending the conflict. But there are other places where we didn't preposition the food properly. Where, for example, I've been through I don't know how many famines in the Horn of Africa, and Ethiopia is a great agricultural country, but we don't have the storage facilities we need on the edge of the areas affected by famine. They also have conflict, obviously, with uh, Al-Shabaab in Kenya, Somalia, and other places. But it's, it's different in different places. The, all we can do right now, those of us who are not in power, but are the NGO movement, is to make sure we maximize the production of small farmers, particularly in Africa. Uh, it's got the largest amount of arable land in the world, and we know that doing simple things that Irish farmers and American farmers learned to do many times in the Depression, in the 30s, uh, can double, triple, even quadruple yields. But a better way would be to prevent the conflicts in the of first course. place. And I wonder but about the you, UN. But I then mean, we would still have, I just want to point out, even if you prevented the conflicts, there are some places where we'd still have hunger because we've mangled agriculture and we need to get it right. What about the UN and the whole model of the Security Council and vetoes and so on? I mean, is that model now in the 21st century a flawed model? Do we need to change it or can well, we think, ever change it? Well, I think what you should... What we tried to do when I was there is get as much regional security as possible. Like, for example, we had an Africa crisis response initiative, and the United States would come in and provide all kinds of training for the main militaries in Africa, within were the, ironically, Nigeria and Rwanda. Rwanda built a big military because of what they'd been through and the genocide. But there were other countries too, and we trained them. And then <clears throat> you didn't have to have a big fight at the Security Council in those places. In other places, if we have got people trained there who are willing to do this on a multinational basis, even if you need a Security Council resolution, under most circumstances, you'll be able to get those countries with veto power not to vote. Just now, to we're much more polarized with Russia now than we used to be. But we, we made a lot of deals with countries that couldn't support the intervention not to vote. And every one of them is different. But, but back to the question, is the model now flawed? Um, if we look at Syria and inevitably well, any action it, it, will be vetoed by Russia. I think that the short answer is yes, but then the EU and the United States have to ask themselves how they're going to feel when their vetoes are disregarded. 
Um, let's move more domestically and Brexit. Were you dismayed by the Brexit result, which meant for those who understood that the Good Friday Agreement could be undermined? Yes. I was most worried about the Good Friday Agreement because I have, I care so much about Ireland and I've got so much, you know, in my life there. But I was dismayed because there were people, I thought, who voted for Brexit because they thought the European Parliament had gone too far. Well, then they, everybody can cite one or two examples where they think the European Parliament sure. went too far. But if, if that's the test, none of us would belong to any clubs or anything else. We wouldn't belong to anything, you know. And so I thought that was overreacting. Then there were those, mostly in rural England and Wales, who were interviewed who said they wanted to get rid of the immigrants. They were worried about the Polish immigrants taking their jobs. Well, they were basically going to cities where there was a shortage of employees and an abundance of work. So it was just, a, it, I never thought it made any sense. And I was afraid it would hurt. And if you look at where we are now, even though Northern Ireland's kept the peace and there's still cranes in Belfast where work is going on, the Irish economy is back to where it was before the crash, fastest growing, <coughs> excuse me, economy in Europe. And the Northern Ireland economy, the growth is still under 2%. And it's because of all this uncertainty and where we're gonna go. So yes, I'm concerned about it. and I. I, I do believe a lot uh, that the political situation in Northern Ireland will clarify as soon as people know precisely what the Brexit terms are going to be, because then each party will figure out where to stand its grain and where to compromise and whether we can put up a unity government again. Um, surprisingly, I suppose, when we look back at the history of Europe and the Second World War and so on, we're seeing the rise of extremist uh, movements and you can blame immigration you can blame all sorts of things but I would also blame short memories because oh, yeah. the EU came about because of the well, tragedy to, of war the problem with democracy is particularly now like this interview we're having it may become uh, an outmoded form of communication for you know you know it's uh, we can't do a snapchat uh, Twitter interview, one's 10 seconds, the other is now 280 characters. I mean, this all may become outmoded. And, uh, and people do have short memories. And yes, there are some reasons for people to feel resentment, growing inequality, and yes, everybody wants some, everybody wants some limits on immigration, right? Some, you have to have it paced and structured and all that. But this anti-immigrant fervor is a very dangerous symptom of an us versus them world. And I think part of it is it's easy for people to get complacent in democracy and think, well, I like this, but I just want it for me and I don't have to really worry about these rules applying to everybody else. And, and you live in a world where the, the eco-structure of information is supposed to get us to jump from one emergency to another because it runs up the revenues if people are torn up and upset, but it leads to very bad decisions. Are you concerned about uh, the, the nature of political discourse in the United States? I was uh, talking to John Weaver on Friday's program, who is a great friend of John McCain, the late John McCain, 
and he was saying once extremism and racism uh, emerge, it's very hard to push that genie back in the bottle. Well, I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, you take when Senator Joe McCarthy was running wild in the 1950s. Um, on the on the day he left the United States Senate, he was basically run out of the Senate. He still had 40 percent support nationwide. When George Wallace was running wild in the 1960s, he got up to 40 percent. And now you see this global thing. Once, once you took the veneer of the bipolar world off, like the collapse of the Soviet Union and everything, then people became more vulnerable to turn inward. And also people thought there were no consequences to causing all kinds of trouble for political gain. So I'm really worried about it. We, it is quite possible that a lot of people could lose their democracy around the world. Um, you are one of the most eloquent American presidents. Um, and I wondered, do you feel how much the quality of words matter? And do presidential words yes, they do. really matter? I, I must say that that's the thing that uh, I always valued speaking and speeches and words before I became president. But I, even though I had studied it all my life, I underestimated the importance of the words of a president in shaping public discourse, attitudes, assumptions. Uh, and there were people who may have agreed with this or that policy of the current administration and said, so I'll put up with this other stuff. And you don't miss it till it's gone. And it was clear to me Senator McCain was trying to draw a contrast between the way, look, he was no patsy. I mean, he said bad things about Obama. He had fights with Bush. And he said bad things about me. But we ended the Vietnam War, in effect, we we, you know, normalized relations with Vietnam. We resolved the POW and MI missing in action issues, McCain and I did. He and Hillary fought like cats and dogs in the Senate, but they cared for each other. They, they went to the northernmost outpost on Earth, Svalbard, on an island north of Norway, and to the northernmost Canadian and American settlements to show other Republican senators about climate change. So it was not like that we never beat up on each other, but we understood what the framework was. We played on a field, and we weren't interested in destroying each other. We were interested in fighting for what we believed in and attempting to get something that would work. And that once you lose that, once there's no trust, no limits, and uh, it's very hard. In America, we're fighting for the very constitutional right to vote. We are, it's, we're fighting uh, for our history as a nation of refugees, you know, for, against policies that I never thought I'd see, dividing children and parents and all that sort of stuff. Uh, the, when you get together, as you did at John McCain's funeral with uh, other presidents, George W. Bush and Barack Obama, um, do you find that you've huge amounts in common because you are uniquely sharing an experience that very few people get to share? Well, we do have a lot, you know, and, and the longer time goes on, the more you tend to have in common. I mean, uh, President Bush's father and I worked on the tsunami in South Asia together and on the Katrina in America. The President Bush and I did a lot of work in Haiti together. and. 
we run a leadership program together that's open to people without regard to party or race or age or anything else. Old age, they tend to be younger. But um, you tend to focus on what endures. That is preserving the institutions, preserving the opportunities of the next generation and finding a way with you know, the older you get, you got fewer days in front of you than behind you. You don't want to waste them by just, you know, going around like a peacock. You'd like to do something that would make a difference. And I think, uh, so we do have that in common. Um, you referenced uh, episodes in the past, uh, George Wallace uh, as governor uh, and Senator McCarthy during the McCarthy era. And is it your view that the current difficulties, the, the partisanship, that th this too will pass? Or is it a case that people will look to you and to others like the late Senator McCain and say you were dinosaurs? I don't know yet. And you know, I'm the, I'm the ultimate optimist. I always see the glass half full. But this is not just happening in America, right? It's a, Poland basically said, okay, we've tried this democracy, we're not sure we like it so much. Hungary. Um, then sadly, Russia, obviously. But everywhere there's this identity by ethnic group or race or political party or stance on immigration. The, the, it's like we think we have the luxury to indulge this. Like, America has no real immigration crisis. We have about 30,000 immigrants that show up. Look at how many they're dealing with. I mean, the Syrians um, that went into Lebanon alone were more than a million. And Turkey. And it's a tiny little country. Turkey's got many more than we do. And we act like this the end of the world when 30,000 people from Central America show up at the... Uh, South and southern border of the United States, who are by law signed by President Bush, which I supported, um, eligible for asylum in our country if they and their children have a legitimate fear that they can't be protected in their home country because of the narco trafficking violence. So they're almost all from Honduras and um, El Salvador and um, Nic uh, not Nicaragua, the Guatemala. They're almost all from those three countries. And their states are not particularly strong. Nicaragua is the poorest of those four countries, but they have a strong police presence. And our law says people who show up because they've been hurt economically by this chaos at home are not entitled to immediate asylum. They have to stand in line with other immigrants. But people who are genuinely afraid, we take them in. So they're being interviewed at the border. That's all there is. This is not. This is all a manufactured crisis to take advantage of the global tide of identity politics. America is the ultimate melting pot, and I mean, there are so many different ethnic groups who are proud to be number one yeah. American and number two Irish or Scottish yeah. or whatever it might be. I mean, the fear is that that might be over. That era might be gone. It might be. And we got to, I think the odds are still with us, that will those of us who believe in preserving our democracy. Um, 
But I would, I used to joke with George W. Bush, you know, we fought all the time, but we were friends and we joke about it. I said, I said, I guess you'll be the last Republican president who wasn't afraid of immigrants. <laughs> I mean, he would gladly go with me to South Texas and debate anything before a Mexican-American audience. And uh, I like that about him, you know, and, and I, I feel the same way. I mean, I'm uh, about us and that. And he said, well, if that happens, then it won't really be the Republican Party anymore. We'll conclude in a moment, but there are two things I wanted to ask you. Do you have any advice for our presidential aspirants? It's a different kind of office here, but I know you've met our current president, Michael D. Higgins, and we'll have some sort of a battle over the next uh, couple of months. Um, do you have any reflections on that? Well, given the, the role of the president as opposed to the Taoiseach, I don't have any advice that would be presumptuous, but I do have an observation. I think that the, the presidential office has proved quite useful to Ireland. First of all, to represent the country in the best possible light around the world. And secondly, to remind the Irish of the big things that bring you together. I think that's really important because, look, uh, this is a country politics and dis disagreement are a way of life. That's good. It's healthy. But people need to remind you this is a really special place. I just said at the convention, the concern convention I spoke at, Ireland is the only country in the world that every single day since the United Nations was established has had at least one citizen in another country trying to save lives, lift lives, protect people. Not another nation on the face of the earth can say that. So the nation state is important, and the president is a symbol of that. And that's the only thing I would observe as an outsider. And my last question is from left field. Um, I've been reading The President is Missing, your number one best-selling novel with James Patterson. Um, and is there another one on the way? Are I don't know, but I wouldn't. Uh, it would tickle me if we did it, but we haven't made a decision to do <laughs> and it. And the, the corollary is, who would you like to play, play President Duncan in a movie which will surely follow? Uh, well, we sold the rights to it. There'll be, it'll be a Showtime, Showtime series, yeah. you know, about a, a eight or 12 part or something. Uh, I don't really know and I don't really care, except I want it to be somebody who comes across as real, somebody who's serious, but a real life human being who takes the job seriously. I think it's so easy to turn everything today given the, as I said, the information ecostructure. This whole idea, this format, you and I are having a conversation, this may not be done 10 years from now. And, uh, and maybe nobody will watch if it is done. But I think, uh, I want it to be somebody, not who's perfect, but who cares, who's serious about the job and comes across as someone who's strong and resolute, but flawed like we all are. That's what I hope. Somebody be, you know, there present in, a, in three dimensions, not a cartoon. Got too many cartoons in modern politics all over the world. President Bill Clinton, thank you very much thank for joining you. us on our program. Thank you. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk.